from the book of Luke chapter 15. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called on one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. The word of God. Please be seated. I think as we get into our, our message this morning, it's imperative for each of us to grapple with the idea that how we see each other makes a difference on how we treat each other. And I think that should sit in our spirit for the rest of our time together as we're listening to the passage, as we're, we're meditating on the word. How we see each other makes a difference on how we treat each other. In today's context, we might call that an implicit bias, um, something that we've learned or picked up subconsciously, either through our culture or through teachings, but we've learned it, and so our minds kind of shortcut to that immediately. Uh, we create stereotypes, and it's just a way for us to function and move a little bit faster than we normally would. So it sits within our subconscious, and, and there, it, from that place, it helps us navigate people and events and places. And sometimes we have to revisit these ideas that sit there if we want to be able to change the way we treat people. Turn to someone right now and say, treat people better. Treat people better. Because how we see them makes a difference in how we treat them. 2011, I had been in ministry full time for about six years. I've been into my marriage one year. I started the master's program here um, in the School of Divinity, um, and I was in that, and I was pastoring, and I was speaking at places, and I did a week of prayer at um, one of our campuses just north of this one. And after the week of prayer, they invited me to come do their graduation, uh, to, what is that, commencement, consecration, thingy bobber? People, they dress up, right, that one, on Sunday. I get there, and the person who was there kind of helping out throws a robe at me. They said, here, you'll wear this. I said, okay, thanks, thanks. And I said, okay, you got to look for, there's a lady around here somewhere. She's coordinating um, where you all will sit, and you've got to sit in a, sp a specific spot because you're going to be uh, the speaker. Okay, okay, I got it. I'll, I'll look for her. Yeah, she looks like this, and she's wearing that. Okay, okay. So I, I commenced to put on the gown, and I hadn't finished my master's yet, so it was just an undergraduate. Uh, you know, gown and get cap and gown, and I come out of the. They they hold it on the top of their campus hill, uh, between the two boys and girls, uh, between the boys and girls dorm up there. So I come out, and I see her, and so I walk hurriedly towards her because you know the time is ticking down. They want to be on time, and I get to her, and I said hi, and she says hi, hi. I said hey, so um, I'm here, and she says say no more, say no more. She says, 
do you see the women's dorm over there? Run down there right now. I said, right now? She said, right now, you've got to get down there. I said, this moment? She says, yes. And so I start running. I run down over there. And when I got there, I looked out and I didn't see anyone but the graduates. So I looked around and said, well, these are all the seniors graduating. I don't know what to do with this. So I went back. And then I saw her. I said, ma'am, I'm sorry. Excuse me. She says, hey, I told you to go down there. I said, but I, but. No, go down there, right, but you, I'm the, no, shh, no more, get down there, and I'm, and I'm, okay, so I start walking down there, and I hear her say, that boy's going to miss his graduation pictures, and I was like, hold on a second, what, so go back, I said, ma'am, I don't, I don't think you, under, I don't think you understand, um, I, I'm not, and she's, listen, you've taken up too much of my time. I need you to go stand with the other graduates. I said, are you sure? She said, yeah. I said, all right. And I went. I knew where I was supposed to be, but you know what? She told me so. I went, and I stood there with the graduates, and I just stood there. And she's running around, and I hear her, where is the speaker? Where is the commencement speaker? Where is he? He is very late. I'm just standing there looking at her. And then the other person who threw the gown comes out. What's going on? Where is the speaker? The speaker, I gave him the gown and I told him to come see you. I haven't seen him. Yeah, he's right there. And she looks over and there I am. <laughs> you see the color leave her. Paler than she was already. She comes back and just, I'm so sorry. I thought you were one of the graduates. I know. That's why I was trying to tell you who I was, but you wouldn't let me speak. You saw me, and you already had an idea of how you would treat me. She said, my apologies. Please come stand in the line. I went up to the line, and I did my thing, and I thought, should I call her out right now? <laughs> I was gracious. I would save it for sermons like this <laughs> that go online. How we see each other makes a difference on how we treat each other. In chapter 15, the book of Luke, it starts this way. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. How we see each other makes a difference on how we treat each other. Notice that Luke is kind of giving us the social standing of this demographic group that Jesus is with. This is kind of what they're known as, the tax collectors and the sinners. But the Pharisees themselves actually call them sinners with a sense of right judgment, righteous judgment on these individuals who were with Jesus. So while Luke is giving a social standing, a picture of this particular demographic, and the Pharisees are actually calling them sinners, in the book of Luke, the writer does not mention Jesus referring to, responding in, or calling them sinners. This is a very subtle point that I think oftentimes we miss. We hear it um, in, in its beginning where, where the writer says these are tax collectors sisters, and we say, okay, that's who they are. But notice that Jesus not at any point ever called them these things. Jesus was there eating with them, and I think maybe he was able to eat and sit with them because he didn't see them the way the Pharisees 
saw them. He didn't have the same bias. Church mother, church mother, I love that. Church mother Ellen G. White. Not very many people can say the church mother. We can, amen, church? Church mother Ellen G. White writes in um, Christ Object Lessons. By this accusation, they, Pharisees, insinuated that Christ likes to associate with the sinful and the vile and was insensible to their wickedness. Think about this. These Pharisees are standing there with their bias towards these people. They see them a certain way. They don't deserve it. They're lost. There is no redeeming value about them. They're not part of the chosen because of who they are. And and, and so when they see Jesus sitting with them and eating with them and say, how could Jesus do this wretched thing? What uh, And sits with this insensible to their wickedness. The rabbis had been disappointed in Jesus. They looked on to Jesus, who's sitting with these vile, welcoming these sinners, these, these people that they just thought are super unredeemable, and they say, how could Jesus do this? This is so disappointing. They grumbled, says the word. They grumbled. Oh, I could imagine some of the things they probably grumbled. Oh, he's such an apostate. Maybe they grumbled, oh, I'm sure there's a special place in H-E double hockey sticks for him. They might have said he's a false prophet, not part of the true church. Because if he was part of the true church, the true uh, religiosity here would call him to, to cut those people off and condemn them. How dare Jesus sits there and eats with them? Maybe some in there in their righteous uh, uh, piety would say something like this, uh, uh, more of a backhanded kind of a slap. Oh, I want to pray for his soul. Oh, Jesus, we're praying for you, poor lost soul, Jesus. Pitying Jesus. Why was it that this one who claimed so lofty a character did not mingle with them and follow their methods of teaching, says Ellen G. White? Why did he go about so unpretendingly working among all classes? This is our Jesus. This is our Jesus, the one who goes about unpretendingly working among all classes. Interesting. I'm sure the Pharisees were not happy with Jesus. I'm sure they questioned Jesus often. We see it in passages in scriptures. I could imagine them asking, this, did, did Jesus get permission from the Sanhedrin? Did someone in the Sanhedrin tell Jesus that he could sit with those sinners and welcome them at the table? How dare he? Is there, what did the high priest have? Did the high priest give permission to this? High priest, Jesus is not about the worries of what others think. He's about the care and love of those who need him most. So this is how Jesus answers. He does not rebuke the elite. He does not turn and educate or teach those who he is sitting with. These are two very different groups of human beings. What he does instead is tell stories. He tells three stories, 
And as he tells these stories, he is speaking to all who may hear. He tells a story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and lost sons. The lost sheep is the first story he tells. And it's about a sheep that is lost. Yes, that's right. It's about a sheep that is lost. The shepherd here, the protagonist, is God, who is the shepherd. And he goes out to bring back a sheep from the thicket because they are all his sheep. Ooh. He didn't go to, to, to save a goat or a venomous snake. He didn't go to defeat an unredeemable, uh, monstrous leviathan. He went out, and though this sheep was stuck in a crossroads of sorts, that sheep was still a sheep just like the 99 sheep. Somebody say amen. They are all sheep. That lost sheep is not some different brand or lost brand or unredeemable to the shepherd. They are all his. And notice that the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one. One small, outcasted, lost, marginalized sheep. The shepherd leaves all because of the comfort of the common uh, uh, general, general collective. Leaves that so that he could find the one who is marginalized and lost. The second story is the story of the lost coin. And it's about a coin lost in the house. The woman here is the protagonist. And again, as Jesus tells this story, the woman is who? God. Very good, church. The woman is God. Why? Because it's just true. The woman here represents God. We must hold on to that moment for just a quick second because sometimes I think we, we, we lose out and we lose sight that God is more than just our heavenly father. That God is divine mother. That in man and in woman we get a fuller picture of who God is. And if we do the travesty and injustice of removing either one of those, we lose out on a picture of who God can fully be, more fully be. So the woman looks out for a coin that is where? Where's the coin found? In the house. Correct. The coin, while not in full possession, is still in the realm of that woman's authority and her care. It's still in her house. The writer points out in verse 9, when she finds the coin, not if she finds the coin. Somebody heard me today? When she finds the coin, in other words, it's inevitable that God, she will find this valuable coin. Not if. This coin, like all of her other coins, are valuable to her. It is not a different coin. It is not an unredeemable coin. It is not a broken, unvalued coin. It is her coin. And when she finds it, she calls everyone to celebrate her coin. And then we arrive at our story for today. Here's the first time we, we meet with a, a, defined, a more defined antagonist, which represents the religious elite. 
Remember the listeners who are here? Jesus is sitting with those they would call tax collectors and sinners. Not too far away are some very angry and grumbling Pharisees about how could Jesus sit with these people? How could Jesus welcome them into his presence? If Jesus really is who he is, why doesn't he come with us, the, the, the ones that look and act a certain way? Why does he so unpretendingly go about blessing and loving them? They're listening to his stories. We find the antagonist in this last story. Not just the son that was younger, but also the older son. The son's story is about relationship. Though estranged from their dad, they are both their dad's child. And if they are both their dad's child, that means that they are kin, that they are siblings. Whether or not they took the same journey to get there, whether they liked them or not, they are both their dads, and so they are both each other's sibling. The eldest son comes home. He's coming home from work, hard in the field, find there's a party going on for the younger son in the house, and it infuriates him. The older son is not very happy. And if I can be honest, I sympathize with the elder son. I'm not an eldest born, but I sympathize with the situation of the eldest son. I tend to empathize with him and, and, and feel him and see him because I, I grew up in the church. I didn't stray too far away. I don't have a great testimony story. You ever hear somebody tell a testimony story and it makes you want to get baptized again? You know, when they tell it, you're like, ooh, Jesus, wow, right? And they're like, yeah, man, I, I, I was, I was uh, caught and addicted. I was a slave to sin. I, I, I couldn't stop the drugs and the alcohol. I was a cannibal. What? A cannibal? I was, ah. Uh. And then one day I met Jesus, and it changed my life, you know. And, and everyone was like, praise the people. crying, man, mercy, praise the Lord, right? And then they would come to you and be like, hey, how did you come to Jesus? I never left. I didn't go very far. I can't tell you of amazing adventures that, that, that I wandered off to. I was here at home with dad. At 11, I became a vegetarian. At 12, I got baptized. I was the, the pastor uh, officer for most of my classes as I was growing up. I was in a choir. I was in special choirs. I went to Adventist school all the way up. I was always home. My parents are Adventists. Their parents are Adventists. My wife is Adventist. Her parents are Adventists. Their parents are Adventists. There's a lot of Adventism going around. I never strayed too far away from home. I didn't go to movies growing up. You didn't do that because your angels, what? What did the angels do? Stayed outside. You want to go to movies? No, I want to be where the angels are. What if I happen to have a heart attack in the movie theater? Oh, man, I'm lost. I didn't. I didn't swim on Sabbath. That's how you know you're righteous. <laughs> you have those heretic Adventist friends who actually went swimming, right? And you're like, hmm, hmm, hmm. I can't wait till that shark comes up. Mm. <laughs> Teach you a Sabbath lesson. Yes, it will. 
I didn't wander far away from home, so I, so I relate to the elder brother. I get why he's struggling through this. He's been keeping his dues. He's been working. He's felt responsible. He, he knows that, that his value, uh, or he, he, he feels that his value comes from the work that he puts in for his dad. Listen, he said. For all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. And I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you've never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this boy of yours came back, who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf. The younger brother, is, uh, he's upset, and in some part of me, rightly so. He's kept the word. He has been good. He's done right. He's tried to be as faithful as he can to the walk. And when this person over here gets to come in and gets the fatted calf, not fair, Jesus. Not fair. The eldest son makes a crucial mistake that we hear in his talk. As he's speaking, we could tell that he was focused on the younger brother and comparing his rightness to his brother's wrongness. You hear the comparison here. I've been working for years like a slave, never disobeyed your commands. There should be some kind of reward for me, God, for following these things. There should be some kind of, uh, of reward for me for being such a good Christian. And then this guy spent all, all the stuff, all the property, all the inheritance on prostitutes. He comes back and you have the nerve to call him your child? When he lost his inheritance, he is supposed to lose his identity of relationship to us. He's no longer your son. He's not redeemable. I'm redeemable. I did the work. I stayed home. It's hard when you feel like you always follow the rules and others haven't. There's a sense of entitlement in us when we're, because we're so used to doing all the right things. We almost feel as if, almost, as if we deserve God's love because we've done a lot. We've been good. God should love us. Our dad should love us. And in fact, at times when we feel like we're falling behind, well, what we do is we ratchet up more good works. We work harder. That, that's how our faith grows. We work harder so that God can love us again. This kind of love that is based on our doing to conditionally move God, our Father, uh, the, the Father in this story, this kind of um, conditional work here is so unsatisfying. It creates an insecurity in me because have I done enough to, to gain uh, your love, God? And if I'm not sure about whether I've done enough to gain your love, has, does anyone else deserve your love? Because I'm working harder than everybody else and I'm not sure about mine. So if I'm not sure about my hard work, I know darn well that son shouldn't get in because he's not even working. Timothy Keller, prodigal God. If we say I believe in Jesus but it doesn't affect the way we live, the answer is not that now we need to add hard work to our faith so much 
as that we haven't truly understood or believed in Jesus at all. Just earlier, a little bit earlier, in the same book, he writes this. If we say, I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't affect the way we live. Sorry. Next quote. To truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. This is the burden of the eldest sons. Those who have stayed near the home. Who feel like we deserve salvation. Who feel like, hey, we're doing way better than the other prodigals out there. We must be careful and repent for the fact is sometimes we believe our rightness should grant us salvation. The elder son was comparing his situation to the younger son. But he, and as fair warning to us as well, needed to keep his eyes on the father's heart. We need to stop comparing ourselves to other prodigals and instead start confiding in our father's heart. We need to stop looking around at other prodigals because we are all prodigals in this story and say, well, that prodigal doesn't get, that prodigal shouldn't be welcomed in. Why is Jesus sitting with that prodigal there? We, we need to stop doing that and start looking into, into the Father's heart to see the love that God has first for us and as well in extension to others. We are all prodigals. But the story is not one via what we did or did not do. The story is one because the father loves his children. And both I and the other prodigal are siblings. The issue was never about how much work the elder son did for the father or the disrespect and consumption of inheritance by the younger brother. Neither son was loved because of what they did or did not do. They were loved because they were his children, his kids. Like the father then, our standard is not to have moral perfection. It is that we lay down our lives for the sake of others. Our standard should be disinterested benevolence. Mirsoff Wolf. Croatian theologian, writes, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But, one can, but, but no one can be in the presence of God and the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without expo transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity and himself, herself, from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. We are but children of God. First story is about a shepherd and the shepherd's duty towards that marginalized sheep. The second story is about the woman's perseverance of value for that coin. And the third story is about the father's heart for his children far and close who are estranged from his heart. The work of the church is not an easy work. If we are to do as the father in the story does, if we're listening to Jesus speak 
to these Pharisees who just easily condemn. They, they see this demographic of human beings as unredeemable and ugly and, and, and not worth it. And, and they've got to get to us if they want to be a part of the kingdom. They've got to prove their value. If we want to not be that while we're listening and, and, and work towards being of the Father's heart, the work of the church then is not easy. If it were easy and convenient and comfortable, um, then that work probably isn't a selfless work. Only work that, that, that feeds us, consumes us, allows us to consume it, is an easy work. Following Christ is a heart work. It's a hard work. A selfless work that is challenging and at times uncomfortable. Following Jesus is uncomfortable at times because it stretches us beyond our own implicit bias. It, it calls us to look again, to see people differently, to maybe ask the question, has my subconscious been cruel and unkind and, and wrong towards human beings that Jesus would be sitting at the welcome table with? This is the call. It's a hard call. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't remind us that love is patient and that love is kind and that love seeks no wrong. You don't have to tell people that if it's just, it just comes to us easily, but it doesn't. And if you handle children, you'll know what I mean. Like, I, every time I'm, I'm with my kids, I have to remind myself, love is patient, love is patient, love is patient, love is, love, love is patient. Yeah, Michaela, it's your fault. Love, love counts no wrongs. Yeah, that's right, because I'm right. Love, love, love does not boast in itself. Love is patient. Love is patient. Come here. Love never fails. <laughs> the work of the church is not an easy work. We were not called to be comfortable. We were called to be a part of the Father's heart that recognizes Others in this world as valuable. In honor of Pride Month, this is Pride Month, June, I share with you, we had a lavender graduation ceremony. It was beautiful. <laughs> Unbeknownst to some, we've been doing it for like three years. And this is our second year in person. And um, one of our supporters, one of our members, uh, sent out an email, and um, when they sent out the email, it was just to invite, is anyone out there feeling like, you know, they're lost and, and that they don't have a voice and they're struggling through this? Come, we want to celebrate you, we want to pray over you. And so when they did that, um, I woke up, it was, a, it was a Wednesday morning at five, to my phone going off, I thought, whoa, Star Wars, what's going on? I started reading, reading people's articles reading people's words against us as a community, as pastors who don't even know us, who's never sat to speak with us, who's never seen us love on each other and our children, who doesn't see the immense, deep, and beautiful, profound, majestic thing that we're doing as a community. None of those people have done that. They just write, right? They, and, and from a, a distance. You know, remember earlier in my, in my sermon when, when I was talking about how the Pharisees might have said this about Jesus? Those were some of the actual things people were saying about us. You're an apostate. 
And when Pastor Ben sent me that text, it was a picture with my face on it. And when I saw the picture, I said, yeah, that is an ugly picture. I would believe that's an apostate too. Can you find a better photo of me? If you're going to talk mess, at least make me look good. There's a special place in H-E double hockey sticks for people like you. Because you sit with people like that. So, the thing about me is, people say stuff about me, but I don't care enough. <laughs> I should a little more. I'd probably cut my hair and dress up nicer. I listen to people who matter, but to those who have words who have not come to sit and to listen and to be at the welcoming table, they don't get to sit in my head rent-free. And so we carried on. I had calls of concern from this area and that area. What is this going to be like? I said, we're going to care for people. That's what we do. We're going to welcome people. That's what we do. I'm a prodigal just like everyone else. And I get to be in the space and say, hmm, God is deeply in love with you just as he is deeply in love with me. Strong pastoral team. Straight up behind it the whole time. Let's do this. Let's go. We had two souls who were graduating. And I didn't know what would happen in that space, but that evening when we opened the doors, it flooded in with you all. Members and faculty and staff from the university who wanted to come out and care for and love on people. I'm sure it was uncomfortable for some. I'm sure it was inconvenient to others. And yet to stretch as God's heart stretches us across the chasm to see the LGBTQIA plus community as sheep, just as I am sheep, as coin in the house that I am also in, as a sibling, children of God. Could we not do any less? The crowd came around. We prayed on them. And we poured into them. Because God calls us to the welcoming table. That's what he does. This morning, I want to close by reading you our response statement. It's not hidden. We didn't put it away somewhere. This is a response statement from your last year university church board and pastoral team. We shared it with, honorably with people who had asked questions curious and we were up front we took the materials from the North American Division Commission of Human Sexuality guiding families of LGBT plus loved ones Adventist edition we also sourced from the impact of family rejection or acceptance among LGBT plus millennials in the Seventh-day Adventist Church we took from our last year University Church welcome statement and of course 
we took from the Bible. And it reads like this. The La Sierra University Church hosts an annual lavender graduation. This is a simple yet meaningful ceremony where we pray over and recognize the value, struggle, and contributions of our lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and ally students who wish to participate graduating from any high school, college, or university. Historically and currently, members of this community have often been alienated from their families of origin and face high rates of verbal harassment, physical bullying, shame, and suicidal ideation. We believe that aspiring to follow Christ's command to love one another means we must resolve to work for change in our community that brings safety and wellness to all, especially to those who have been marginalized. So, we have no interest in judging people. We strive to follow Jesus in laying down our lives to care for vulnerable people. At Last Year University Church, we gather weekly for worship with the Bible open, seeking always to be relevant, raw, and wrestling with our faith. Dependent on the Spirit, we strive to be a community of Jesus followers who are authentic, transparent, inclusive, and compassionate. We invite you to join us in the challenging, complicated, rigorous, work of loving as Christ loves. As Paul's exhortation reminds us in his letter to the church in Corinth, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not dishonor others. This love never fails. In a world where people have often failed to love, we choose to do as Christ does. May we stretch past our comfort zones to lay ourselves down for the sake of loving others the way God loves us all. Alongside our North American Division Commission of Human Sexuality, we believe that the time has come for the Seventh-day Adventists to write a new chapter in our relationship with the LGBT plus persons. As we work to make concrete changes and open new conversations, please hear us when we say, all are welcome here. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The story finishes there with an open ending as to invite us to make a decision on what we will do. Do we keep othering people? Seeing them the way that we think they should be seen, treating them that way, and comparing them to where we are in our righteousness, looking out to anyone who dares sit and eat with those that are othered and condemn them as well? Or do we come to the welcoming table in the house with the Father, recognizing them as siblings, others as kin, 
and all as children of God, just like us. How will the story end? I'm proud to say that last year University Church continues the diligent work of doing our best to show up at the welcoming table.